Welcome back to The Conversation Season 3. I'm your host, Gina Simeone. This podcast is sponsored by Single Throw Marketing, a Google Premier Partnered digital agency. To stay ahead of your competitors and get on page one of Google, check us out at singlethrow.com to see how we can help. On today's episode, we have Peg Wright. Peg has served as the president and CEO of the Center for Great Expectations since 1998. She founded the center to assist homeless pregnant women and adolescents to assist in breaking the cycle of homelessness, abuse, and addiction. The program began in Somerville, New Jersey, serving only 12 women per year, and under Peg's leadership, it now provides an uncompromised continuum of care across prevention and treatment of substance use and mental health disorders. We're going to talk to Peg about why a trauma-informed approach is important when treating substance abuse or mental health disorders. Thank you so much, Peg, for joining us today. It is my pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. How's it going? Good, good. As I said, I just came back from vacation, so it's baptism by fire, right? <laughs> you know, it's not the worst. Substance use and mental health. So here we are. Here we are. Let's go. So yes, yeah, so I'm really excited to have Peg on. Um, she is the founder of the Center for Great Expectations, as I mentioned. And we wanted to talk to you about what is this center and how did you found it? Very good question. It wasn't on purpose. Uh, <laughs> to be, Gina. <laughs> so I, I actually, um, you know, my career was focused on uh, management of diag- and sales of diagnostic imaging equipment back in the day. And when I retired, I was 36, had my son, and I started volunteering for this little program in Somerville called Great Expectations Maternity Home. And okay. that's where it all began. And I, I met a nun, Sister Rita Wolke, and Rita said, you know, we, we can do much more than is happening here right now. And so we created a new corporation and the company was focused on assisting pregnant and parenting women who had substance use and mental health disorders. So we looked at adolescents and adult women, but we were in this little house, you know, it was six, two bedrooms, six beds, one bathroom for six pregnant women. It was crazy. So we knew we had to expand. And at that point, I knew that I needed to know a lot more about how a nonprofit worked, what the landscape was in terms of the state and the feds and the legislature and all of the above. And so I, I began to learn about that from, you know, very generous people in the community. And we recognized that we needed to expand. And so we bought land in Somerset and we built two buildings. We raised a little over $5 million. Wow. And one building was dedicated to adolescents, pregnant and parenting. And the other was dedicated to adult women with substance use disorder, pregnant and parenting. And so that it took a long time. You know, I mean, we, we start, we incorporated in 98, we bought the land in 2002 and we, began construction in 05, building the board, doing all of those things that you need to do to make a a nonprofit successful. And we didn't until 2008. And that's when we opened. And yeah, it was quite a Megilla to put it mildly. Did it take you 10 years to raise $5 million or how did you do that? Well, no, I mean, in in 98, you know, we just really were, were getting our sea legs, so to speak. We didn't buy the land until the end of 0203. Okay. Uh, 
And we didn't really start to fundraise until the end of 02, 03. And then, you know, it took from 2003 to, well, 2005, we started the construction and we weren't finished until 08, which, you know, apparently is not unusual. They were two 16,000 square foot buildings. So, so we finally opened. And when we opened, you know what, I would say we weren't much different than state-funded treatment centers are even to this day. And it was kind of a standard 12-step program. And the interesting thing, shortly after we opened, I met a woman, uh, Debbie Roussard. She is now Dr. Debbie Roussard. And she came to us with this concept of delivering trauma-informed care. And it, to me, it sounded kind of scary. You know, you're going to give women yeah. choice and you're not going to, you know, create this very firm structure. And I I wasn't a fan right away, but I, I have a dear friend who's a consultant psychologist. And she said, you know, just let, let it unfold. Yeah. And clearly a very difficult process to implement a trauma-informed plan for care but there's no other way, really, if you're really interested in breaking the cycle of abuse, neglect, homelessness, all of the things that the women that we serve experience. And yeah. a punitive approach is not helpful at all. So that's when we started. And it, you know, it's a process. I mean, it's a multi-layered process that really incorporates, you know, a lot of different layers. It's cultural, it's environmental, you know, it's, there are policies and procedures that are very integral to the success of a trauma-informed model. But the interesting thing was, is that now it's a buzzword. Everybody's talking about trauma. That's what I was just going to say. We just had someone on our podcast, you know, a couple months ago talking about trauma-informed therapy. And now that's kind of everything, you know, it's talk therapy is one thing, but if you have a trauma, you need to get trauma-informed therapy. Tell us really what is trauma-informed therapy? Well, you know, as I said, it, it's it's not any one thing. There are multiple aspects to that approach. And it, you know, it starts with the person picking up the phone. Yeah. You know, how do they respond? Are they, you know, a caring individual that is not stigmatizing, not shaming? Is the facilities manager... Uh, someone who can, for example, experience someone's dysregulation and not go off. It is a very intentional approach that it really is embedded throughout the entire continuum. So it, it starts with the person that answers the phone. It includes training for frontline staff. It includes, you know, excessive, intensive training for clinical staff. You know, and includes things like child parent psychotherapy, for example. It inc- we happen to adopt the ARC model, which is a way of delivering care, which includes, you know, recognizing the dysregulation in that individual. We're not so focused, for example, on changing behaviors, but we're more interested in what drives those behaviors. What's what are the underlying issues? that uh, really create dysregulation in individuals, which is then, of course, shared with that individual's family, whether they be infants, 
or or children. So so another thing, for example, you have to really go some to be discharged from the Center for Great Expectations. That's what I was going to ask. You know, what is yeah. the what's the process like once? Yeah. They- well, there it, you know, as I said, you know, we don't see dysregulation as a a necessitating a discharge. It just doesn't. And typical treatment demands that. You know, it, it includes language. You know, we don't use language like, is that person clean? Well, I noticed that you don't say substance abuse. You say substance use. Right, right. And ha- and is, for example, is abstinence the only way to define wellness? It, it's not necessarily. It just yeah. isn't. I mean, we're strong proponents of harm reduction and medication-assisted treatment. Clearly something that has to happen. So for example, like we as clinicians, now I'm not a clinician, but our clinicians will tell you they're not the absolute authority. They're not. That they are working with that client to create a client-centered approach that is, you know, aligned with that client's goals and objectives. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't focus on character defects. I mean, that just isn't you know, something that we do. I mean, you'll hear in traditional treatment addicts lie. Well, no, they not necessarily, you know, they're, they're not able to share their truth because they're so shame filled. You know, we don't punish aggression. We see it as a response to trauma and we give, you know, choices to our clients. They have to, they have to feel like they have some skin in the game, that they're, they have a way to participate in their treatment. And we receive clients sometimes in our program that have been told not to talk about their trauma. It's like, whoa, yeah, I mean, wow. you know, that, that just, you That's know, old school mentality. Right, right, right. So it, it just isn't how we are in relationship with the, the clients that we serve, the women and children that we serve. So yeah, I love that it's such a different approach and it really kind of separates you from the government treatment centers and things like that and really focusing on the women and their needs. Um, you actually, so you run 115 full-time employees. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And you, it's, guys are, you guys are growing every five seconds. <laughs> well, it's a continuum, right? Because yeah. we, we also realize that recovery doesn't happen in six months in a residential setting. Right. That's where it starts. So these yeah. women live, they live with you for any unprecedented amount of time. They do. They do. Okay. And it again, it's driven by an individual plan for each woman. So, you know, the average length of stay for the adult women's program is six to nine months. And, you know, the average length of stay in the adolescent program is longer than that. Um, It's a year plus. When they have their children, do you house their children as well? The children, they're either pregnant or parenting. And we we include children up to the age of five. Okay. They they all live, you know, to get we we reunite children with the women that we serve when they're ready. You know, if they're pregnant and they've recently had an infant. We will, each individual plan will, will dictate, you know, when that reunification should happen and, and when they're ready, it does. So, you know, and that's where parent-child psychotherapy becomes, you know, something that's, that, you know, a critical piece in the treatment of, of the clients that we serve. Gotcha. So you, you have a lot of hats that you wear. What would you say is probably the most challenging thing that you have to face on a day-to-day? 
staying in my lane. (laughs) (laughs) Amen to that. (laughs) You know, you've got to know what you don't know. You know, as I said, I'm, I am so interested and drawn to the clinical approaches that all of these brilliant clinicians that I, that I have, you know, in, in our agency, but it's, it's important to be able to read the tea leaves and see how growth and change in the field impact what we do. You know, we have some extraordinary partners in Rutgers University. You know, Dr. Denise Heehan is one of the preeminent expert in the area of trauma and women. She's been in that area for a number of years. Dr. Emily Bosk is a big early relational health specialist. And we work together to collect data and they assist us in guiding our process. So we're, we're really, you know, very grateful for them, but it's, it's a, it's a change process, right? It's, if you're not growing and changing and evaluating what you're doing and making appropriate changes along the way, you're dead. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, that's very accurate. So you started in New Jersey, you're in Somerville, um, but you are known around the country. So tell me how you expanded. Well, we're in Somerset. I'm in Somerset. Okay, and you know we we expanded into Somerset, but the other thing that I started to talk about is because recovery doesn't happen in that six to nine month period, we expanded to what is called the continuum of care. So we have an outpatient program in East Brunswick. We have 28 supportive apartments that are sprinkled around. Some are in Somerset, some are in other counties. We have an in-home program that incorporates uh, doula case managers, substance use counselors, and peer specialists. And that's in seven counties. Wait, so tell me about that. So they go into the homes and work with people? They go into the home. That particular program is funded through the Department of Children and Families. And those it, those women have experienced an opioid use disorder. Uh, we can get a, a dispensation to serve other substances as well, but it's, you know, it's a narrow field right now, but we're really hoping to expand that, you know, in terms of the substances that women are experiencing, because let's face it, I mean, the barriers to to getting treatment for someone who's just had a child is, is difficult. There's right. transportation issues, there's babysitting issues. And frankly, if you can be in the home with an individual that's struggling with an SUD, there's nothing better than that. Yeah. Yeah. And then the doula case manager is assisting that woman postpartum because that's also, you know, a a critical piece. And in the state of New Jersey, you know, we're working in collaboration with the state to really mitigate maternal mortality, which is a huge issue. I mean, we're 47th out of 50 in the state of New Jersey and maternal mortality. And that has to change. Yeah. Wow. And I neglected to uh, mention that we have a child development center on site in the residential program where the children uh, and infants go while their their parents are in treatment. Oh, wow. That's Basically great. from seven in the morning until three o'clock in the afternoon. But we also, uh, to your point, we have expanded across the country and that service is facilitated through what we call the Institute. And the Institute is the training arm of the Center for Great Expectations. And there are really two components of that. One is the clinical consultation component. And the other is the school-based component. And we 
actually have gone into schools with the intention of shifting the culture. And we do that by training the staff, not the children, about how to create an environment that is trauma-informed. And our team is is really skilled in that regard. And we've done that in, in a variety of communities. We actually launched it right before the pandemic and we're just scaling as we speak right now. Oh, nice. so, for example, on the clinical side, we're, we're training the child welfare workforce in New Mexico right now okay. in a trauma-informed approach. Thank God for Zoom. So we don't have to go there, but that <laughs> works. Um, so I was looking through your bio and you have won countless awards and been recognized for things. What would you say up to this point is your greatest accomplishment in regards to this business? I would say that my greatest accomplishment is creating a cohesive, welcoming environment within the Center for Great Expectations. And that's all due to the, you know, extraordinary staff that I have. I mean, it's it's truly a a privilege to work with them. And I think that is probably the most important accomplishment that I've had. And I've learned that through them. Yeah you know, through the lens of, you know, what does servant leadership look like? You know, I'm there to learn from them and uh, support them in every way that I can possibly. That would be it. No, that's great. And I mean, you know, with 115 employees, it must be, I mean, obviously you're not their direct, all their direct bosses, but I'm sure, but, you know, just managing that and keeping this afloat and, and, together, not to mention the whole nonprofit part of it. So you said that trying to get a nonprofit started was difficult. Um, Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, I mean, I didn't know anything about it. You know, I came from a corporate setting. So I think that one of the advantages of coming from a corporate setting is I'm a business person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my heart is in the work. I mean, that's what I care about most. But at the end of the day, there has to be an ROI. I mean, people you know, want to invest in something that's working that you can point to, you need to be accountable and you need to make an impact. And so their investment is, is well placed. And that, I think I'm very focused on that aspect of the work that we do. That's amazing. No, I think it's great. I mean, you're, you're making a difference for women and children everywhere. So that's got to be a good feeling and very rewarding for you and your staff. We love what we do. Yes. And we're really good at it. So. <laughs> so if someone wants to get involved, either from a business standpoint or um, as a prospective client standpoint, how do they get in touch with you? They would reach us through the website. There's a, a separate uh, website for the Institute, which is also on the main website. Clients are referred through Perform Care for Adolescents. So that's through the Department of Children and Families. And adult women are also referred through the uh, Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. The outpatient in East Brunswick, that also accepts men. So anyone can reach out. It's called Roots to Recovery, and it's in East Brunswick, New Jersey. And they also have a trauma-informed approach to substance use. And there are a variety of videos uh, that you can check out on the website that will give you a, a sense of all of that. Awesome. And your website is cge-nj.org. You got it. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Gina. Great to meet you. Great to meet you as well. And we'll talk soon. Excellent.
This podcast is sponsored by Single Throw Marketing, a Google Premier Partnered Digital Agency. To stay ahead of your competitors and get on page one of Google, check us out at singlethrow.com to see how we can help. Listen to us every other Wednesday, anywhere podcasts are found. Follow us on Instagram at the conversation with an H-E-R and follow our link tree at L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash conversation.